What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Do you read Stephen King? Good news. There's a club for you. The Losers Club. And guess what? You don't have to die at the hands of a shape-shifting clown to join. No, all you have to do is tune in every Friday as us losers journey through the never-ending wastelands of King's Dominion. Each week, we'll either spend hours reading between the pages of one of his books or chew on his latest tweets and Hollywood headlines. What's more, we're always having guests over. Thomas Jane, Mick Garris, Jerry O'Connell, Mary Lambert, Will Wheaton, and the list goes on. So what are you waiting for? Join us as we read on through long days and pleasant nights. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with. It's an audio interview series presented by WFPK Independent Louisville at WFPK.org. Consequence of Sounds and the Consequence Podcast Network. Wherever you're listening from today, hit that subscribe button right now so you can keep up with all of these interviews. My name's Kyle Meredith. Today, a very special episode. Let, let's call it a, a 50th anniversary episode because I've got two artists who in some way are celebrating 50 years. Talking about the zombies and Tower of Power. Back in 1968, Tower of Power got their start. So later on in the episode, I'm going to be talking with Emilio Castillo about that and their new music. But first, Rod Argent of the Zombies. It was 50 years ago this year, their second album, Odyssey and Oracle, arrived. And no one cared. <laughs> In fact, we're going to talk a little bit about how it took a while for that album to find its feet, eventually becoming one of the greatest albums of all time. We'll also get into their song, A Rose for Emily, being used in S-Town and Eminem sampling the band. There's also discussion on his uh, second band, Argent, having its 50th anniversary next year. And we'll talk a little bit about two of his solo records, one from 1978 that featured Phil Collins and one from 1988. And a little update on what we can expect from the zombies. It's Kyle Meredith with Rod Argent of the Zombies. Uh, let, let's start with the uh, the most recent news from the zombies, I guess. You guys are going about to take a, a West Coast uh, trek, is that right? Absolutely, yeah. We're going. Um, we're, we're flying out at the beginning of September, and uh, I believe we're over there for three weeks, actually. I saw one of those dates. Uh, I have this right? You're playing with Arcade Fire? We are playing with Arcade Fire. Apparently, they really wanted us on. 
which is very sweet, you know, very nice. Was there any reason? Is that a special event planned, or it's just like, hey, this is on our wish list, and we'd like to do this? Well, I mean, uh, uh, they got, I think they actually got in touch with us, as far as I understand, and they really wanted us to um, do the show with them. Hmm. So I don't know whether they've seen us or, you know, what the situation is exactly, because it was all organized through our management, mm-hmm. um, our American management company, but it's something we're really looking forward to. You know, and I know that probably puts you in front of a different audience. I mean, you know, the zombies are an institution at this point, but I'm sure, you know, it's 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 probably a very different show for you all being in front of something, I don't know, that young? Well, I mean, you say that, but and, 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 and you're, you're probably right. But do you know what? We always have a young component in our audience. I mean, it's a mix of ages, usually. But there's almost always quite a large young component in our audience anyway. People that seem to have been turned on, particularly to Odyssey and Oracle, uh, but, but the new stuff as well. By uh, a lot of, quite often, a lot of emerging independent bands talk about us. And, and, and maybe that gets their, their younger fans to check us out, you know, or check out what they're talking about. But it, it, I have to say, you know, we, we, we always have a few young bands in the audience there to see us. And um, and and we usually have quite a, a substantial component of of the, of the young audience as well. Last year, one of your songs, "A Rose for Emily," sort of found itself back into popular culture because of the uh, S Town podcast. Did did you see any effect from that on, on your end? Was that noticeable to you all? Well, there were several things last year. I mean, that was absolutely one. And you know what? I've never heard the podcast, but I hear it's really good. So, I, you know, I still mean to check it out <laughs> at some point. But uh, no, that was terrific. You know, the fact that each episode ended with a rose for Emily. And, of course, we also had... There, there have been several things with Time of the Season recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was uh, the film about uh, John Paul Getty, you know, All the Money in the World. Mm-hmm. Time of the Season was in that, and that was the main thing on the trailer uh, for that film. Just a year before that, or maybe it was two years before that, Eminem sampled heavily time of the season and did a very clever thing with turning the... It, it very much um, sound-alike writing in the lyrics, but turning the meaning absolutely around. That was uh, a very clever thing for him to do, I think. You know, so there are one or two things that, that, that tend to come up all the time, and, and we're very grateful for that, I have to say. Time of the season, the song that just keeps on giving. <laughs> year after year, well, it year. does. Yeah, and I'm really grateful for that. <laughs> do you uh, do, do you get to reach out to Eminem at all? Was there any kind of conversation that goes on with that, or do you just get the call like that he would like to use the sample, and and that's the extent? Let me tell you what happened with the Eminem thing. My publisher phoned up and said uh, Eminem wants to use your song. I said okay, um, but he wants you to. Uh, I said we have to hear it, and I said okay. And they and she said, but it has to be done in the next couple of days. I said, oh my god, okay. And then she came back to me and said, the problem is he doesn't like to have his stuff out on the net, you know, before it comes out. So I don't know quite how you're going to hear it. I said, well, there's no other way of me hearing it. So in the end, he sent me a link that was just for two hours uh, on my, you know, personal um, email, and I checked it out on there, and I loved it actually. I thought I thought it was. I thought it was really good because it wasn't just a copy or something, you know, taking from what was there. He used it really cleverly. As I said, he he he, he turned the meaning on its head, but in a very clever way. So I loved it. So that that was that was how I got to approve that particular one. That's a, such an interesting, you know, it's something you've done at at you know certain points in your life. The way they just kind of get uh, you get to hear them in such a different lights, you know, all these years later. That must be really uh, a cool thing. 
I think it is, yeah. I mean, it's always lovely when somebody covers, covers something uh, as a cover. I think perhaps my favourite cover of one of my songs was Carlos Santana doing um, She's Not There. Oh, yeah. And that was, of course, way back in the 70s. But, and that's always great. But when someone does puts a, a completely different slant on what you've done but uses it as a jumping off point then yeah that's very cool well i, I want to hit a few of the big round numbers this year and not just the uh, the 50th uh, there are a handful here but I, I thought you know we would start with that one because it's still the 50th anniversary of uh, of odyssey and oracle when yeah. you when you have a record you know that's been celebrated so many times and for so long and for the good reasons by the way this is one of the most this is the masterpieces of the 60s right here does a record well, does a record like this still change for you after this long, or or did it eventually arrive to its resting place at some point along the road? It, it took me completely by surprise. I mean, the story there was that it came out and it didn't do anything anywhere. And even when eighteen months later we had a number one record in Cashbox in in the states, number two or three in Billboard, I think. And then it became number one in many, many places in the world. Odyssey and Oracle, the album, didn't really sell, Mm -hmm. even on the back of that. And then about 12 years later, I I had a phone call from Chris White, um, the original bass player in our band, saying, oh, I just thought you'd like to know my kids are at college. And um, it's becoming a real cult album. I said, oh, yeah. And I put the phone down. I said to my wife, no, it's not. But (laughs) it it was. (laughs) But but it was. And and in fact, it was when people like... um, Paul Weller, who was one of the biggest, and still is, one of the biggest UK stars over here. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, bigger than he is in... in I, I know he's, he, he means something as an independent in the States, but over here, he, he's absolutely enormous. He quoted that when he was number one in the charts with the jam, you know, at the height of the, the punk thing, he said that Odyssey and Oracle was his favourite album of all time. And that's something he says to this day as well. So that completely took us by surprise. And do you know what? I hadn't listened in that 10 to 12 years. I don't think I'd played Odyssey and Oracle at all. I'd forgotten what it sounded like. And I sort of rediscovered it myself, but never thought that I'd ever be playing it. Uh, at that time, I came off the road, I thought, for good. I mean, I was heavily involved in music, but I was producing albums and playing on albums for other people. I was um, doing TV scores, etc. And, and And I got back together with Colin, you know, completely by accident in, in around the year 2000. And, and it was years after that when somebody floated the idea. It was Chris, actually, who floated the idea. He said, we've never played this. Why don't we do it? So we decided to do it. And we decided to do it by reproducing every single note that was on the original album. And to do that, we got uh, some of our friends like Darian Sahanaja from the Brian Wilson band, who I, I, I knew that he knew every note that was on Odyssey and Oracle. So he played some backup keyboards for me on that, on the, the overdubs that I'd done on the original one. We, we got one or two extra people in to do the extra overdubbed harmonies that we've done on the original, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it was a complete surprise to us, and, and it's been a joy to do it. Well, those sounds on that record, I mean, some of the some of the sounds on that record, especially what was happening, you know, at the time, it sounded like they come from a different planet almost. Uh, you know, where was all that coming from? Because there was so much going on that was brand new, musically speaking. I think in the sense, I think you're right in a way, because when I when I went back and played it after that long period of not playing it, it was it was much different to what I'd remembered. Yeah. It, it, it didn't sound like, it sounded just like itself and nothing else. And, and, and I think that that's one of the reasons why we often had trouble initially 
you know, getting a sequence of hit records because we never tried to jump on the coattails of, of whatever was going on. We always got excited about a musical idea and then just tried to make it work mm -hmm. and worked it through without thinking what's fashionable at the moment, what might get us played on the radio, etc., etc. We never thought like that. And certainly with Odyssey and Oracle, we just came up with some ideas and got excited about them and went in and recorded them very quickly. I mean, it was done over a period of several months, but the actual recording of each track was just about three hours for each track from start to finish because we didn't have enough money for anything else. <laughs> Uh, we, we honestly didn't. Yeah. We, uh, CBS gave us gave us um, uh, a thousand pounds for the whole album wow. to record the whole album, and even then, that wasn't very much money. And we went to Abbey Road, you know, which was an expensive studio, so we had to really prepare the tracks before going in, and then we would put what we'd rehearsed extensively down in about, I guess, an hour and a half or something. And then any spontaneous ideas that we had, because there were extra tracks available to us, we would use that spontaneity as well. So, you know, maybe put on an extra harmony that occurred to us in the studio. So it was a really good combination of preparedness and spontaneity for us. And, and it was, it just felt lovely to do it. But, but we honestly thought that, you know, after, the, after it was finished and we put the first single out, which was Carousel 44, and nothing happened, we thought, well, that's it you know it's just it's been nice but we did, we decided to break up because some of the guys were really strapped for cash and luckily for me and chris the writers we found out much later that we usually had a hit somewhere in the world but the world was a much bigger place in those days you you often didn't know what was happening right. um you know until months later it's very different to now you know you can have a hit in out of Mongolia now and know within an hour. But in those days, you, you didn't. You really didn't. So it was a bit of a strange time. But I do think that the fact that we just looked at the thing honestly and tried to just follow our enthusiasms meant that we ended up with something which didn't really sound like quite like anything else that was around. And at the time, that did us a disfavor by it not sounding fashionable enough for people to latch on to immediately. But in the long run... I think it means it can still actually relate to, to people now, you know. And, and as I said, we get, we get, we get 18, 20-year-olds coming up to us and saying, this is my favourite album, et cetera, et cetera. And it feels amazing to me that something we did so long ago can, you know, still has the power to actually relate to a current generation, still talk, you know, still, still mean something. So, you know, I think in the long run, it, it did us a favour. And it was recorded, you know, it was released in 68. Uh, uh, it was recorded summer of, uh, and fall of 67, I think. You know, which kind of makes it a summer of love record. And, and there is some innocence to yeah. it. But when I look at the timeline, yeah. like that tone would change so much two years later with the, yeah. the, the, the start of, of Argent, you know, in, in, in 1969. Which, by the way, you know, 50th anniversary of that next year. But that was a, yeah. it almost seems like a very, very big musical jump, like a completely different sandbox to what you'd done two years well, prior. No, I, well, no, I have, to, I have to disagree with you because, in fact, if you listen to the first Argent album, the very first one, which, and, and the first two Argent albums, that's before the one with Hold Your Head Up on it. Mm -hmm. um, those, the first two, uh, in other words, Argent and Ring of Hands, I, I think that the, that the first album, Argent, sounds absolutely like a continuation of the zombies. Uh, I really, really do. But, but things change very quickly. It, uh, I, I mean, can you imagine how different 
the, the Beatles stuff was right. from I Want to Hold Your Hand to things like, well, whatever you want to choose, you know, Revolution Number 9, but, but things that weren't so out there as that. You know, it, it, they were completely different pieces of music, completely different. Because when you're that age, you're just hungry to explore different areas all the time. And you always want to be on the cutting edge. I mean, something like Odyssey and Oracle and something like the Beatles' early stuff doesn't sound like cutting edge now, but it did when it came out. The Beatles' stuff was revolutionary when it came out. It was like nothing else that, that was around, you know, the very first Beatles records. It's so hard for people to realize that now because, you know, we're looking from a point of view of many years later. But if you were contemporary at that time, but the... the the first couple of Argent albums, they did progress into other things quite quickly, but I honestly feel that Argent and Ring of Hands were, you know, and, and they were uh, certainly the reviews over in the UK absolutely treated the Argent album like a continuation of the zombies. But of course there were different musicians involved mm -hmm. and you, and you always, you always write and explore according to the abilities and the character of the different musicians that are involved. I mean, that's inevitable. I mean, look at the difference between the early Fleetwood Mac stuff and then uh, and then the later stuff that came on, you know, after Peter Green left, et cetera, et cetera, and when you've got real personnel changes. It's inevitable, really. And the one with Hold Your Head Up on it, which I think is a very mixed bag. It's got two or three really good tracks on it and, and some that have a very different orientation. But the first two albums, I, I, don't, I don't think are dark at all. I don't have that dark. I do understand what you're saying. And I understand about some of Russ's writing with, you know, uh, Lonely Hard Road on the, um, on the first album, I think, or was it Ring of Hand? But, um, you know, some of the early, early things on the, Argent, the first Argent album were, were very romantic and very, you know, full of the character of the zombies, I feel, with the harmonies similar harmonies, similar um, bits of improvisation. Uh, you know, I think it very much had the character. But, of course, by the time of, of Hold Your Head Up, which, strangely enough, most people think I wrote that, but 90% of that song was written by Chris White, the original oh, wow, bass player yeah, in The Zombies. Yeah. But it was, it was moulded by the character of the musicians on, on Argent. And, in fact, strangely enough, Hold Your Head Up was a first take. Um, the drummer had never heard it, and... We actually did 35 takes of that song, and we went back and used take one. <laughs> That's funny. Are you planning anything for the 50th uh, of that of that band as well? I, I don't think so, because I, I tell you what, as I've got older, uh, both Colin and I give everything to the zombies, and it's you know giving one band everything I've got is it, quite enough. For me. <laughs> and, and, and we are. It is important to us to try and continue to write. I mean, we've always done that. And in fact, our last album knocked us out so completely mm -hmm. because uh, when it came out in, in late 2015, we got a phone call from Billboard saying, we just wanted to let you, we were on tour. And it said, we just wanted to let you know that it's actually made the top 100 album sales. And they said for the first time in 50 years as the zombies, as the zombies, you, you, you've made the top 100 album sales. And, and, you know, that completely knocked us out because that, in a way, is more important than anything to us because we're not just interested in trying to rake over the coals. We, we, we still are doing it because of the energy we get from writing and recording and making things work and getting energy back from the audience when we play new songs. We can play over in the States or anywhere. We can play 
time the season and get a fantastic response. And we can follow that from the track from our last album mm-hmm. and get a wonderful response on that as well. And that completely knocks us out. And from young kids as well, young people that are there, not just not just people that have followed us all the way through. Although well, I'm not being ageist when I say that. I mean, I, I love anyone coming on to see It's just brilliant. It gives that uh, album title, Still Got That Hunger. I mean, that's what a perfect sentiment, you yeah. know? That's exactly why it's called that, really, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try to pivot a little bit I, to just bring up one more anniversary because there are two records yeah. that completely get overlooked. I believe they're out of print right now. Uh, Moving Home and Red House. Moving Home, 40 oh, years old goodness. this year. Uh, Red House is 30. I mean, you, you do like releasing on the big round 10-year numbers here. I don't know if you, <laughs> you've listened to those in a while, but they're such fun records to listen to, and I, I feel like they're, they're sort of forgotten right now to uh, you know the, the general public anyway. I think they really are. And moving home, it's not possible to get uh, to get copies. Not not on a. I mean, um, that was that was recorded on NCA, I think, uh, and um, they never released it on CD. So it was, ne- you know, there's never been a dig- digital release of that. Um, so it's very very hard to get that. Red House was done because a production colleague of mine, Pete Van Hook. Um, who was originally a drummer with Van Morrison. Pete and I teamed up, and, and we had some huge success, actually, producing and playing on albums for other people. We did Sunita Tikram's first album, which did four and a half million albums in Europe. Um, I know it wasn't so uh, it wasn't as popular in, in, in America, but um, it was hugely it was a huge album, and and we we produced a Josh Callison album that had three hit records in the states. With, oh, Nancy Griffith, um, you know several things. But he had a, his own record label called MMC, and he said to me while we were producing, he said, "Look, I'd like you to do an album for me, Rod." And I said, "Well, what sort of album?" He said, "It's got to be basically an instrumental album, and and with a sort of new ageish feeling." He said, "That is the." That's the, the character of what we're trying to put out on MMC at the moment. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And, you know, I gave it my best shot with, those, with that in mind. And I was really, really pleased with, with what, what came out on that album. I think it's got a really good character. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm so pleased that you've heard of it. <laughs> well, I'd love to see some uh, issues of those, especially moving home. I mean, you know, considering yeah. um, beyond just the, the good music, I mean, what, Phil Collins and Gary Moore? Uh, as a part of that one, right? Like you'd think that Absolutely, would get more yeah. attention. Yeah, that would probably get more attention than I think it has. You know, just consider yeah, the three yeah. of you all. Well, do you know what? I mean, I don't know if it's. I, I can't see that it's come out, but Phil Collins, through uh, somebody else, got in touch with me recently and said that he can't find a copy of of a, a track on that album called Home because he wanted. Uh, he was going to release a, a big compilation album which included his favorite contributions to other people basically and and home was was going to be one of those i mean i haven't seen it come out but that was from moving home yeah. and i know phil loved playing on that would love to hear that well i know we're running out of time here i thank you for uh for jumping yeah. back in the time machine and uh it sounds like there still will be new music around some corner if you're uh if uh you guys are still writing uh so that's exciting yeah. absolutely i'm really looking forward now because we, we've toured the new album for a couple of years uh, you know the last album for a couple of years, so uh, I'm really looking forward now to you know putting the the writing cap on again. And I just um, uh, my wife and I moved house after 38 years, so I had to build a new studio here, um, which has just been completed. So I'm really looking forward to um, get, getting those creative juices going again and um, and doing the next album. Yeah, I look forward to hearing it, Rod. Thank you so much for the talk today, and uh, and have fun on that tour out there. 
I'm sure we will. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. A big old thanks there to Rod Argent of the Zombies. Looking forward to that new music when it rolls around. As I said, it is a special episode. You get two for the price of one today. And my next guest, Emilio Castillo, legendary of the band Tower of Power. Their newest record is called Soul Side of Town, and we definitely talk a lot about it. But we also turn back that clock, back to 1968, what it was like for the band, getting its start back there, uh, playing at the Fillmore, and eventually becoming one of the great backing bands for... Lots of artists, including Johnny Rotten. Yeah, that's right. They were the uh, they were the horns for a public image LTD record. So I had to ask about that one as well. And he gives us a tip on when we can expect the next LP, which, uh, spoiler alert, it's right around the corner. Probably going to happen next year. Kyle Meredith with Tower of Power. I know we got the new record out, and I want to talk about Soul Side of Town, but since it's also landing on the 50th anniversary of the band, I thought that would, might be a fun place to start. Heading back to 1968, I mean, 50 years, that's that's incredible, right? Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, people are always coming up, you know, that's amazing. It's, yeah, I'm more amazed than you. <laughs> so this goes back 1968. At the time, though, you were called the Motowns? Yeah, we had a soul band in East Bay called the Motowns, and then uh, I met Stephen Kupka, the doc, and uh, hired him on baritone saxophone, and we started aiming towards the Fillmore Auditorium, changed our name to Tower Power. We knew we'd never get in there with a name like the Motowns, dressed in suits. Was it ever a problem that you were called the Motowns? I mean, having Motown and everything, the big brand that it is, was that ever a, a sort of a legal thing? <laughs> we were nobody and nothing, man. Motown. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was looking back on it, and I sort of had to take a crash course on where exactly the genre, uh, the soul genre was in 68, but it, but it said that that was the year that soul music splintered into funk and blue-eyed soul. Was that noticeable? Because you all were doing something so different than what we had known as soul at that point. Were the lines drawn? Like, we're taking this into the future? Well, I just think that, uh, you know, soul music was very popular in the mid-60s and all the way through, you know. By the time we came around, certainly, you know, it became ultra-popular because we hit the Fillmore, you know. And bands like us were playing for hippies, and it, was, it just kind of hit mass America, you know, that, okay, this is this is something cool. And so, yeah, so there was offshoots, you know, bands coming out strictly funk, you know, bands coming out like uh, Parliament Funkadelic, Sly and the Family Stone, that kind of stuff. You know, and, and yeah, there were genres, but we didn't think about that stuff. We just, we had a passion for soul music, and we had a passion for making it our own way, and that's what we did. You know, and uh, we like to mess with the rhythm. Obviously, a big focus on the horns, kind of a quirky writing style. With uh, I like background vocals. I love having a great lead singer. So that was our uh, our concept, and we just sort of refined it over the years. What is such an interesting time, too, because talking about playing places like the Fillmore, I mean, that must have been such a very show of styles when you were playing there with other bands just to have all the big rock happening at the time and and then to have something like this come in i mean that had to have sounded so different for everybody well that was really what changed the face of music uh, all through the world really uh, bill graham was a genius you know he he found that you know he had this amazing success with um you know hippie music psychedelic music but he had a passion for rhythm and for horns and for soul and blues you know salsa and so what he did was 
he kind of tweaked the collective year of uh, the Bay Area and also New York because he had to film more east over there. Mm -hmm. And he would bring in like Rasan, Roland Kirk, and Sam and Dave and put them with the Grateful Dead, you know. And then the next night he'd have uh, Eddie Palmieri and Otis Redding and, you know, a big brother and the holding company. So, you know, he just exposed all these open-minded people who were really seeking open-mindedness in a, a big way, largely chemical. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, it really tweaked everybody's ears. And they were, they were like, well, this is cool. Wow, this is cool. You know, and pretty soon everybody was listening to all different types of music with an open ear. And he did that, you know, and that's the time we came up in. And uh, it was a great time to be in the Bay Area. And you all ended up playing with so many different people throughout the years beyond just your own records. I, I, I was kind of coming through and the big names in there, the, you know, the Elton Johns in there and whatnot. But one really caught my eye that I had no clue about. And that's that you backed Public Image LTD, Johnny Rotten's band. Is that right? Yeah, it was just a session. Yeah, PIL. Yeah, they called us up. I can't remember. Where, we might have done that in New York. I can't remember where we did it at. But, uh, yeah, it was just a recording session. You know, a lot of people think, you know, because they see our names on albums that, like, you know, we know these people and hung out. You know, sometimes they're there and we meet them. But other times it's just the record producer and an engineer and our horn section. We go in and throw the stuff on it. You know, but, uh, yeah, I, I remember playing with them. We played with Poison. You know, I mean, we've done a lot of Radical Sessions. We did Pure Prairie League and uh, Neil Diamond and, you know, uh, Puff Daddy and Pharaoh Munch and Aerosmith. Yeah, so a lot of diverse uh, types of music. Yeah, I mean, they probably call you all wanting the Tower of Power sound, but does it ever get to be a challenge for you to... To when you're doing those sessions to like how do we fit into whatever they're doing not really because that's kind of why they call us we figured out a way to make you know uh, other types of music sound great with big horn section and you know i give largely the credit for that to greg adams greg adams was our horn arranger for 25 years and he had a way of you know uh, doing arrangements that when the horns were in you really noticed it, you know. So a lot of people they bring in a horn section and they got oh they go like oh saxophones, you know. I want it to be like that guitar part, da 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 da, you know. And you know if, if you're a guitar band and you cover all your guitars with the horn, well, what are you going to do when you mix? Obviously, you got to bring up the guitars because those are the guys in the band. So what Greg did was he he figure out a place in in the song where you know we just go bow, just one big fall, you know, and then the guitars would be featured. Then we come in da 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 da, you know. So when you heard us, it was really clear because it wasn't getting in the way of the actual act. And that really, uh, you know, improved the sound of their songs to the point where people were just calling. They wanted that Tower Power horn sound on their rock and roll, and it worked very well. It's so noticeable. I mean, that sound instantly, what you all have, it's, it's so identifiable right from the beginning. It's a big horn section, and it, it has, as I say, a lot to do with the arrangement. Well, that brings us up to the new record, Soul Side of Town. Congratulations on this one. The first one in, in like a handful of years, but I hear it's been in the work for a while now. Was it meant to be lined up with the 50th anniversary? Uh, you know, we, we knew that we were, we were, you know, coming up on it, and uh, we knew we were overdue for a record. We're, we're a working band, though, you know, so we're, we're not the kind of band that can go, we're taking six months off, and we're going to go record a record. You know, we, we can't afford that. we got too many people to feed and, so we go in and out all the time, and uh, we, you know, we try to 
grab a few days here, a few days there at the studio. And uh, I did that for like three years. You know? I had about uh, 17 tracks recorded. And then I, I went and did some work with Joe Vanelli. And uh, by that time, I knew the project was too big for me because I knew that I was going to aim for the 50th and that I was really trying to make the best record I could. You know, an old manager told me, you really need to ring the bell this time. Uh, this is not the time to just throw 12 songs together and put it out, you know. So he said, you know, do it the Michael Jackson way. Record way more than you need and pick the best 12. And we, we recorded 28 songs. And what happened is they all came out so good, and largely because, you know, I made that really smart decision to ask Joe Vanelli to help me finish it. For one, it speeded the process up, and it just really upped the ante, music-wise, arrangement-wise, recording-wise, engineering. In every way, he just pushed the envelope for Tower of Power. And uh, by the end, we had two completed albums, and the record company we signed, which Mac Avenue Records, they wanted to put them both out. You know, we said, well, let's put out one at a time. So we put out Soul Side of Town. We got a whole other album in the wings, completely mixed, sequenced, ready to go. Wow. How fortunate is that, you know, especially for the fans? You might have had to have waited a little bit, but just wait a second, and I'll give you another one right yeah, away. Yeah, well, for a band like us, you know, I mean, we've been so slow our whole career. We, you know, all my career, I've had the record company breathing down my back. We need a record, you know. <laughs> We're just, we've always been slow, you know. But uh, now, you know, we got this new record out. It's doing really well. We got a first number one chart position in Billboard and a few top ten chart positions in Billboard for independent and R&B, hip-hop, so, you know, uh, within a year, we'll follow it up. So that's great. You know, it's called So Side of Town. There's several genres on here. Of course, you got soul and funk and some R&B, but, but calling it Soul Side of Town, that seems like you're, I don't know, are you trying to make a point with that? It's just, you know, I mean, that that's where we're from. You know, we're from Oakland. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up in Detroit, you know, so... I mean, that's, that, that's just what influenced me as a person. And uh, when I went to write that song, that, you know, that's what I was thinking about. There's always a, an area of town where all the barbecue joints are and all the cool sort of, you know, after-hours clubs and stuff. And uh, that's what we grew up around, you know, and every town's got them. And uh, that's what I wrote the song about. It just seemed like a good title for the album, Fifth Tower of Power. Yeah. Now, I don't mind saying, though, my favorite, I think my favorite, my personal favorite, is Butterfried. It's yeah. seriously fun song. What's the story with that one? Is that just a great jam session? You know, that was a, kind of a tooth puller for us because we originally, uh, our, our keyboard player wrote it, Roger Smith, and uh, he wrote it. It was really laid back and had this uh, uh, long head on it that, uh, you know, we did several times. And uh, Joe came in, he said, you know, this we got to do something with this song. It needs to have more energy, you know, and uh, we wound up taking the track and speeding it up and uh, and then doing a bunch of different stuff to it. And, uh, you're right. I mean, it really uh, brings a lot of high energy and uh, great musicianship to the forefront. I know you got some good vocalists on here. Marcus Scott, focus. He's a new guy. Butterfly doesn't even need that going on. You know, that's so exciting about that one. <laughs> but I should ask about Marcus, too, because what a great vocalist. He's phenomenal. You know, we had Ray Green singing for us. We loved him. He was a great singer, a great trombone player, and a great guy, Christian guy, you know. And uh, next thing we knew, Carlos Santana loved him, too, and <laughs> offered him, you know, twice twice the money and half the work. And you know, He's got two kids in college. We couldn't blame him. We had two months to find a singer. I already had uh, over half the album recorded with Ray. And, uh, you know, by God's grace, you know, Marcus Scott came out of the scene. I think he's 
possibly the finest singer that's ever sang guitar power. Just a, a unique, soulful voice, a great, you know, live performance delivery, and uh, just a really grounded, you know, uh, a really mature young man. You know, he just turned 33. It's, I look at him and I think, man, I, I was a mess at his age, you know. <laughs> but uh, he's, he's a wonderful singer, and uh, we, we, we did some of the songs that Ray did. But then, you know, it was getting down to the wire. We needed to finish it. So we kept some of Ray's and, uh, you know, did a whole bunch with Marcus. I sang a few. It came out great. We're really proud of it. Now, so I heard, speaking of members, is it just for the shows? Chester Thompson and, and Lenny Pickett are back for the anniversary concert, or, or are they on the record as well? Uh, no, they're not on the record. They came in for uh, the 50th anniversary concert. I had Bruce Conti and Rocco Prestia also play a few songs. We had 10 violins and uh, two extra background singers. Actually, the singer that Ray Green replaced in Santana, Tony Lindsay, uh, sang background for us, along with Sal Cracchiolo, our trumpet player's wife, Melanie Jackson Cracchiolo, and... Uh, a lot of fun, and so now we're starting the mixing process on that, and the video editing will follow, and uh, we'll have a DVD, live CD, two-disc set coming out shortly. I mean, just how fortunate, though, to have so many folks that you've worked with through the years to be, you know, available here and there to kind of, you know, pull back in the fold for these fun moments. And, and, and what talent in that whole family. I've got great relationships with all my past members. You know, I've had a lot of great players, and uh, they all, you know, really enjoyed their tenure here. And, uh, you, know, some, you know, some of them had to go on and, and you know, do other stuff. And uh, you know, we were blessed with other great players, you know. And so we got a, a great alumni here. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely second that one. Uh, Emilio, it's been so great talking to you. And again, congrats on Soul Side of Town. And, and man, 50 years. That ain't nothing. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. Thank you so much, Kyle. Good talking to you. All right. Pleasure talking to you as well. God bless. Bye-bye. That's Emilio Castillo. Thanks so much for the call. Tower of Power, the new record is called Soul Side of Town. Hey, don't forget, uh, wherever you're listening from today, podcast, YouTube, wherever that is, hit that subscribe button right now. Uh, And especially if you're listening to the podcast version at, uh, at iTunes or Podchaser. Uh, if you can leave a rating and a review as well, that would be really, really awesome. Then you can head over to WFPK.org. That's where I do a show every Monday through Thursday from noon to 3 Eastern. You'll also find some bonus episodes of this series over there. I'm Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.